This particular broadcast is part one of a two-part presentation on the care of residents who have dementia in long-term care facilities. We at CMS, along with the Alzheimer's Association, felt the need to provide updates on clinical issues which challenge both the nursing home staff in providing care for residents who have Alzheimer's and related dementias, and also surveyors in evaluating the care the residents receive in relation to their identified needs. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. In America, watch you and attract your every move. They're even putting poison in your food. In America, people are trying to see the truth. But it's too late, and there's nothing we can do. In America, just watch your favorite show and watch the news. I love America. It's been my home all my life. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. We're planning on providing the medical background of dementia on today's show. Today, we're going to be looking at the basics of dementia, including issues surrounding differential diagnosis, causes, symptoms, physiologic changes to the brain, and stage dementia, and some current studies and research on the disease. All right, now that we've got the technical details out of the way, we're going to get started. And we're going to start today's show with an introduction to the topic of dementia care in nursing homes by our CMS Regional Office Nurse Surveyor, Sharon Roberson. Sharon Roberson is a nurse consultant with the Boston Regional Office of CMS. She's been with CMS since 1991. Sharon is a registered nurse who conducts surveys in the New England states. She is also a contributing instructor at both the National Long-Term Care Basic Training and Hospital Basic Training. She's also been a nursing home administrator. Um, and we'd like to thank you for being here, Sharon. Thank you, Doris. Uh, I know you've had a lot of experience of observing um, uh, observing the care of residents with dementia uh, from a surveyor's perspective. And I understand that a large portion of the nursing home population may be diagnosed with the dementia. I also understand that there are a lot of issues related to everyday care and services. So uh, if you would, uh, explain to our audience why CMS has decided to produce this series on dementia. Well, Doris, surveyors of nursing homes have been noting for some time that there is an increasing number of nursing home residents who have some form of dementia. CMS has had meetings with the National Alzheimer's Association to discuss issues that Severs is seeing. Because of these meetings, CMS has chosen to bring together clinical experts who can assist us in providing the most up-to-date knowledge for our federal and state surveyors about dementia, including what happens to the brain, how the progression of the disease affects functioning, and importantly, what interventions nursing home staff can use to take care of the residents who have dementia. How prevalent is the problem? In nursing homes, the number of residents with some form of dementia is quite large. We've run data from the MDS system as of December 2003. 
And as of that date, there were 16,333 certified nursing homes with 1.4 million residents. Many people think that most people with dementia have Alzheimer's disease. But here's what our database shows. Of the 1.4 million residents in nursing homes, 17.3% have Alzheimer's disease and 37% have some other form of dementia. So out of 1.4 million residents, 54.3% has some form of dementia. And that's over 753,000 people. Wow, I mean, I had no idea that those were the figures. Uh, obviously, with that kind of incidence, uh, this is an issue, I think, which surveyors must be aware. Absolutely, Doris. With that many residents affected by some form of dementia, it's essential that staff make themselves aware of the symptoms of dementia and how the disease affects functioning and behavior. I'd like to identify some of the issues surveyors are seeing. We see residents with short and long-term memory problems. They may not remember the location of their room, or they may misplace personal belongings, such as their glasses or hearing aids. Often they don't even remember family or staff members and find themselves anxious when they're approached by people they think are strangers. They often believe that they are considerably younger and perhaps are still at home with their families, even though many of their family members are deceased. They might spend hours each day searching for their family, yet not even recognize them when they do visit, perhaps not even recognizing their spouse. Some residents have difficulty in making decisions, such as what to wear or whether to go to an activity or not. Some have mood and behavior symptoms with comments like, I wish I was dead, asking repetitive questions such as, where do I go? Who put me here? Continuously calling out for help or repeatedly saying such things as, help me, help me. Some have persistent anger at their placement in the nursing home and frequently insist that they're going home or they can be seen waiting at the door for someone to take them home. Some have unrealistic fears, such as the fear of being abandoned or left alone. Others may have disturbances in their sleep cycles. They confuse day and night. Some have physically abusive behaviors, such as pinching, hitting, biting, scratching. Or some may have socially disruptive symptoms, such as screaming, disrobing, smearing food or feces, or even rummaging through other belongings. Some resist staff during personal care. They may refuse to eat or even take medications. Some residents wander, which is when they have movement with no purpose discernible to staff. When they do this, they're often oblivious to their own needs or safety. There are so many challenging symptoms that residents have with dementia. So Sharon, these are the kinds of things that surveyors really need to be aware of. Absolutely, Doris. Well, you can see with these issues that challenge nursing home staff, it challenges them as to how to effectively assess the resident needs, develop an individualized care plan based upon the resident needs, implement the care and services, and keep these residents and those who live around them safe while enhancing their quality of life and their highest practicable level of well-being. Staff must understand both the disease process and the functional changes it brings and the approaches they may use to try and minimize some of the more distressing symptoms. For the surveyors, it's also a challenge to be able to assess the adequacy of the services the facility is providing to meet the needs of those residents with special symptoms of dementia. And that's why CMS <laughs> has decided to produce these two broadcasts, correct? 
Correct. It's important for both nursing home surveyors and staff to have the most current information about the disease processes, symptoms caused by damage in certain areas of the brain, and what interventions can be used to address those symptoms. So we at CMS have developed these two presentations on dementia that we believe will help both surveyors and facilities. The first presentation will provide information about Alzheimer's and the other types of dementia, how they affect the brain, and how those brain changes affect the way a resident responds. The second satellite will be more centered on surveyor issues related to their evaluation of the interventions the facility is using. Specifically, the surveyor has to make determinations to the adequacy of the facility's assessment of resident needs, the plan of care, and how well the care meets the identified needs of the residents. For this second broadcast, we're planning on having a psychologist and a nurse who are experts in dementia care, as well as two physicians from this broadcast. We're planning to cover issues surveyors are observing. These issues will be presented to the experts so they can discuss why the resident is acting in certain ways and the different ways the facility may respond to these issues. I mean, I think you brought out some facts that uh, I wasn't aware of. Uh, it seems that nursing homes caring for people with dementia need a lot of knowledge about what's happening to each person that they serve. And to get a better feel for what dementia really is and how it can be diagnosed, uh, we've asked Dr. Powers to prepare a short segment to introduce you to some typical symptoms of dementia and a diagnostic overview of the disease. Dr. Powers is a geriatric psychiatrist and neuropathologist. Uh, he trained at the University of Kentucky in Johns Hopkins Hospital, and he is currently associate professor of pathology in the division of neuropathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He is the director of the Bureau of Geriatric Psychiatry for the Department of Mental Health for the state of Alabama and oversees the dementia education and training program for the state of Alabama as well. Today we're going to be talking about a very important issue in long-term care, and that is the confused elder. The goals for this uh, talk include, first of all, to explain why this is important to somebody who is working in the long-term care setting. Secondly, we want to discuss how common confusion is in the older uh, resident in a long-term care facility. We want to outline the kind of knowledge that we would expect a uh, long-term care professional to understand. And then we want to try to tie the kinds of brain changes that occur in things like depression and dementia with the kind of behaviors that you have to actually manage when you're out there on the units. In order to cover this, we're going to talk about what I call the three D's of confusion, which is depression, delirium, and dementia. Why are we talking about this? Because, of course, it's a common problem. Some studies show that up to 80% of long-term care residents, nursing home residents, have some sort of a DSM diagnosis. Uh, up to 60% may suffer from some form of uh, dementia. So consequently, if you're in the long-term care business, you're in the neuropsychiatric management business. And although we're not capable of talking about all of the issues that you're going to confront uh, today, we will cover most of the most important issues that you're going to see with regards to the management of these individuals. In order to understand brain malfunction, you first have to understand how the brain functions normally. So what I thought we would do is begin by briefly reviewing uh, how the brain is structured and the kinds of systems that you're going to see malfunction in a person with depression or dementia. To begin with, there are three major systems that you will see in the brain. There is the functionally compartmentalized cerebral cortex. Uh, there is the subcortical processing centers, such as the thalamus and the basal ganglia. And then there are the brainstem centers that uh, 
produce uh, neuromodulators like norepinephrine and dopamine. To begin with, let's look at the normal brain. Here you see the uh, lateral view of a uh, normal brain, and up here we see the frontal lobes. Different brain regions do different things. So for instance, the frontal lobes are involved with things like personality, social control, uh, social graces, impulse modulation. Here we see the motor strip. This, these are the neurons that actually move your arms and your legs. Here we see the parietal lobe. This part of the brain is involved with integrating incoming sensory information, for instance, to tell you where your arms and legs are located. Back here, we see the occipital lobes. These are involved with uh, visual recognition and visual integration. And down here, we see the temporal lobes. These are involved with very sophisticated uh, sensory processing, such as uh, understanding uh, spoken word. Down below, what we see is the, uh, is the brain stem, and that's where many neuromodulators are located, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. When we're talking about deeper structures, which you'll see here with the arrow pointing to the thalamus, this is a nucleus that's located deep inside the brain and it integrates upcoming sensory information. This is important because when it's damaged, it can produce things like thalamic pain syndromes. Over here, we see the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia consists of things like the caudate nucleus and the globus pallidus and putamen. This is what is termed the extrapyramidal system. So out here, you see the pyramidal system, which moves your arms and your legs according to your thoughts and your wishes. And down here, we see the extrapyramidal system, which is involved with things like muscle tone and balance. Let's talk a little bit about how the motor system is, uh, is organized. In this slide here, the part of the brain where the uh, motor strip is located that actually moves your arms and your legs. So for instance, if I want to move uh, my hand into a 45 degree position, uh, my motor strip tells the arm to move. My sensory neurons uh, tell me where that arm is in three-dimensional space. And my extrapyramidal system balances the flexors and the extensors to allow me to maintain it in an even balanced way. Of course, if I have a stroke, I can't move my arm. If the parietal lobe that integrates sensory information doesn't tell me where it is, then I sometimes may stumble when I'm trying to move it. And if my basal ganglia, if my extrapyramidal system malfunctions, then I won't be able to hold it steady. Oftentimes, drugs will produce what are called extrapyramidal symptoms, stiffness, rigidity, and shaking. And in the uh, survey guidelines that you use, F329 through F333, they expect you to understand the common side effects of antipsychotic medications. In order to understand extrapyramidal symptoms, you have to understand how the motor system works. Now let's talk a little bit about how the sensory system works. Sensory function is broken down into different compartments. So for instance, in this picture of the uh, temporal lobe of the brain, right there where it says TTG, that stands for the transverse temporal gyrus. That is where you are hearing what I am saying. The STG further up stands for the superior temporal gyrus, where you are understanding what I am saying. Further anterior is the temporal pole, and that is where it is all synthesized as a message. The planum temporale, which is the PT, actually organizes your thought uh, into sort of auditory or verbal thoughts. Different brain regions in the temporal lobe receive and organize sensory information in a different way. I'm going to show you a little later on what happens, for instance, in Alzheimer's disease, where the transverse temporal gyrus is not damaged, so the patients continue to hear without difficulty. However, the superior temporal gyrus 
and the temporal pole are damaged and they do not understand what is being said to them. Now let's talk a little bit about the brainstem. The brainstem is a place where neuromodulators are located. There are three major types of transmitters that you need to be familiar with in the brain in order to understand the kinds of medications that you're going to see used in your residence. There are uh, direct neurotransmitters that send messages from one brain area to the other. Uh, drugs like uh, memantine affect those types of systems. Then there are what are called the neuromodulators. They basically set the firing rate for broad networks of neurons. Uh, chemicals such as norepinephrine, uh, dopamine, and serotonin are neuromodulators. When those nerve cells are dysregulated, what happens is that the patients develop things like Parkinson's disease or depression. Uh, in this slide, we see a, a representation of the brainstem. And here, the arrow points to the midbrain where dopamine is produced, as opposed to here, uh, where the arrow points to the pons, where uh, the locus ceruleus is located and makes norepinephrine, and down here, the medulla, where uh, serotonin is produced. The third class of transmitter that we're not going to talk about today, but we will in a subsequent uh, uh, program, is what is referred to as trophic factors. Trophic factors promote growth, regeneration, and health of neurons. Things like nerve growth factor are trophic factors, and they may soon be used as treatments for certain types of dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. All right, now that we've got the basic neuroanatomy down, let's talk a little bit about some of the diseases that can produce uh, confusion in your older resident. Let's begin with depression. First of all, depression is a common disorder and you as a long-term care professional should be familiar with it. We know that up to 12% of nursing home residents may suffer from depression. We know that probably about 10% of the general aging population and as many as up to 25% of individuals with chronic severe health problems may suffer from depression. Therefore, we need to be familiar with the typical signs and symptoms associated with depression. We're all familiar with the classic symptoms that you expect to see, things like lowering of mood, sleep disturbance, loss of appetite, loss of energy, that sort of thing. But let's review, uh, as we see in this next graphic, some less commonly known but important symptoms. First of all, let's talk about somatization. Somatization means that the patient does not describe basic symptoms of depression but rather produces a lot of physical complaints. Let me give you an example. This is that little old lady who whines all the time. She complains that her stomach hurts uh, and she's been to two or three gastroenterologists. She's had four endoscopies. No one can find anything wrong with this lady and everybody's just frustrated with her. But let's listen carefully to this lady. What she says is, you know doctor, my stomach hurts so bad that I don't sleep at night, that I don't care to eat. I'm not interested in anything anymore. I don't care if my family comes by. I feel like I'm a burden to them. And doctor, you know, if you can't fix this stomach pain, I might as well be dead. Now I ask you, what is the distinction between that and the classic symptoms of depression? And the answer is none, except that the, the somatic complaint is the ticket of entry into the healthcare system. Depressed elders oftentimes will not tell you that they're feeling down in the dumps and that they feel like giving up because that's culturally not appropriate to them. So somatization can be an important, sometimes overlooked symptom of depression. Other things include confusion. You can produce a uh, dementia-like syndrome in patients with depression. It's called depressive pseudodementia. Any patient who is confused needs an evaluation for depression. Weight loss. Your facility should look for depression 
in every patient who is losing weight. Uh, oftentimes it's that they can't eat, it's that they won't eat. Other things include behavioral abnormalities. Uh, all, all of a sudden, if a patient becomes hostile, withdrawn, combative, one of the things that you need to exclude is depression. Remember, 25% of Alzheimer patients are going to become depressed. In fact, up to almost half of uh, Parkinsonian patients may have an episode of depression, and oftentimes it will be manifest as a behavioral change. And finally, psychosis. Anytime you're prescribing an antipsychotic, you should first ask, why is the patient hallucinating or delusional? And if, in fact, the patient is depressed, what you need to do is treat the depression while you treat the, while you treat the psychotic symptoms. Why am I, why am I uh, beating the depression drum so hard? Well, the, the reason is that 90% of these folks will get better if we just treat them effectively. All of the medications work pretty well. I can't recommend one particular drug over another, although I tend to use SSRI medications because they are particularly safe and effective. Remember, the common reasons why people don't get better with the antidepressant medications is inadequate dose and in inadequate duration of time. It takes six weeks to see the beneficial effect of an antidepressant medication. Why should you be concerned about treating this illness? Well, we know that individuals with depression who go untreated have higher rates of mortality and morbidity. For instance, if you have heart disease and depression, your risk of heart attack goes up, your risk of disability or death goes up, your risk of stroke goes up, your risk of uh, disability from the stroke goes up. If you're diabetic, your blood sugars go up. And we now know that uh, people who are depressed have an increased risk for developing dementia later on. Consequently, it is very, very important to look for and aggressively treat depression in the aging population. The second of the three Ds that we're going to talk about today is delirium. My colleague is going to discuss this as well, so consequently I'm only going to briefly touch on some of the signs and symptoms of delirium. It is, the t it is temporary confusion brought on by unrecognized medical problems or inappropriate medications. Why is delirium so important in the elderly? Because it's common. Studies show that up to 3% of nursing home residents are delirious at any point in time. We know that 15% of elders in medical units are delirious. And if you have a hip fracture, you have almost a 90% chance of developing delirium if you have Alzheimer's disease. So consequently, delirium is a problem, especially in individuals who are brain damaged. Delirium is commonly missed, especially in the emergency room. Missed delirium significantly increases morbidity and mortality for patients. If you go in a, a facility and don't understand, and the facility staff does not understand the typical symptoms of delirium, then there is a problem because their patients are going to have these kinds, they're going to have these kinds of symptoms. Why am I emphasizing delirium so much? Well, as you see in the next slide, the neuropathology of delirium is that there is no neuropathology. If you recognize it and treat it, the patients usually get better. Finally, let's talk about the last of the three Ds of confusion, and that's dementia. Dementia is the loss of multiple intellectual functions in the awake state. The next graphic demonstrates what demented brains look like. On the left is a normal brain, in the middle is a mid-stage brain, and on the right is an end-stage brain. On the next graphic, if we take a coronal section through these brains, left is uh, early, middle is middle, and right is uh, end-stage dementia. Dementia is the loss of multiple intellectual functions produced by the relentless death of brain cells. It is a dynamic disease. It changes over time. 
So consequently, not only do you have to assess the patients, but you have to reassess the patients over time to see where they, where they are uh, in their disease. In order to safely care for patients with dementia, you must have mastered the four A's of what I call Alzheimer's disease. Amnesia, aphasia, apraxia, and agnosia. If you do not understand those four A's, and if the staff in the nursing home that you're in don't understand it, then you have a serious problem with your dementia uh, management program. There are two different kinds of symptoms that you'll see in a demented patient. There are the intellectual symptoms, which I'm going to talk about, which produce behavioral problems from cognitive loss. Those symptoms require behavior management according to the regulations and according to good care. On the other hand, there are psychiatric symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions which, do, which can be treated with appropriate psychotropic medications. Well, let's talk about the first and most common of the four A's, that's amnesia. Amnesia uh, is uh, memory problems. You have two kinds of memory circuits located in different regions, going back to that concept of compartmentalization. You have long-term memory, which is stored over neural networks, and you have short-term memory, which is located here in the hippocampus. The, the slide of this brain from the temporal lobe above represents a hippocampus as seen with the arrow, and down below you'll see the hippocampus from a slice of temporal lobe from a person with Alzheimer's disease. Notice how much more dilated the ventricle is as seen by this arrowhead, as opposed to the ventricle here in the normal up above here. The reason that that ventricle is dilated is because the hippocampus has died. Hippocampus processes recent uh, memory. So for instance, the way your brain is structured is uh, you have, it's sort of almost like your own PC. You have a workstation onto which you load information and you hold onto it for five or ten minutes. And then you have a save button which puts it into long-term memory. The workstation is located here in the hippocampus. When this part of the brain is damaged, people develop short-term recall problems. However, their long-term memory is left intact. Almost all Alzheimer patients develop short-term recall problems early in the disease, and that is a point at which you probably want to initiate therapy. As the disease progresses, as we see here in the next slide, wide areas of the temporal lobe are damaged, and consequently, long-term or older memories are lost as well. Remember, this is a progressive, relentless disease. Next, let's turn to language. There's two types of language function that you have to be familiar with. There is expressive language, my ability to speak to you, and there is receptive language, your ability to understand what I'm saying to you. Let's talk first about expressive language. There are many messages that you can send to somebody. There is the content of the speech, which I'm saying, saying to you. There is the emotion. If I, you can tell if I'm happy or sad, even if you can't understand uh, what I'm saying. There is the volume, how loud I'm speaking to you. In, in some uh, neurological problems, the patients will actually speak in a loud, forceful voice when, in fact, they're not upset or angry. And then, of course, there is a cadence or prosody. I speak somewhat in a musical tone. On the other hand, some brain injuries will produce sort of an uneven way of speaking, which can sometimes be uh, distracting to the individual. You speak off the left side of your brain, and you curse, and you sing off the right side of your brain. So, for instance, a person with a left-sided lesion uh, may not be able to speak to you, but they can cuss you out. It doesn't mean that they still have expressive language skills. It just simply means that the, that the, that the, uh, the speaking side of their brain is gone. As you can see in the next graphic that shows you uh, a right-sided uh, 
uh, damage produced by Alzheimer's disease as compared to the normal on the left. This is typical of the kind of frontal lobe injury that you see in Alzheimer's disease uh, that would produce some difficulty with speaking and then subsequently with swallowing and chewing. The second kind of language that you need to be familiar with is your receptive language. You have, as you see in the next slide, that demonstrates temporal lobes, you are listening to what I'm saying here in the transverse temporal gyrus, and you are understanding what I'm saying here in the superior temporal gyrus. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a disorder of the high order association cortex. In other words, the part of the brain that does your understanding. The part that does your hearing is not damaged by this disease. Oftentimes, you'll hear staff say to you, he hears just fine, he won't do what he's told. And of course, with Alzheimer's disease, that is partially true. He does hear fine. It does not cause the patient to become deaf. What happens, however, is that the understanding part of the brain is damaged, and they no longer understand what you are saying to them. Receptive aphasia is, is very important because oftentimes it, uh, it goes unrecognized. The patients only uh, get every third or fourth word, but they do kind of understand what you're saying to them. They, but more importantly, they understand your body language, your tone of voice, and what's going on around them. So, for instance, they may not understand what you're saying to them, but if you look frustrated or angry as you're trying to deal with them, they may uh, not understand the words, but they get, they get the attitude and the tone of voice, and they may become alarmed. So, consequently, nonverbal communication with an Alzheimer patient is just as important as verbal communication with these individuals. So, that's aphasia. Apraxia is the inability to do pre-programmed motor tasks. Everything that you've been taught through life, how to walk, how to talk, how to chew, how to swallow, those are all programmed somewhere in the brain. In the next slice uh, here, we see on the left a normal brain and on the right the parietal lobe of an Alzheimer patient. This is the part of the brain that tells you where your arms are in three-dimensional space. It cues up your motor strip on what to do, for instance, if you're going to put on a shirt. Or even if you're going to walk, it tells you where your feet are underneath you. Consequently, when this part of the brain is damaged, even though you may want to put on your shirt, if you don't know where your hand is, or if you're struggling to understand where it is, you may not be able to put that shirt on. Now remember, the motor neurons that move your arms and your legs are still intact. So the patients retain their strength they just forget how to do these very complex activities. In fact, typically what happens with a patient is the more complex activities, such as driving, uh, working, that sort of thing, are lost early. And then as the disease progresses, the simpler functions, such, such as uh, walking and uh, chewing and swallowing, are lost. Patients with gait apraxias uh, oftentimes look like they don't know how to use their feet. That's because the part of their brain that tells their feet where to move is damaged. However, they're still able to kick you and push you away with their feet. That's because the motor neurons that allow them to move their feet are still intact. Apraxias are very important to recognize. Once the patient loses that function, it probably is not coming back. Now, no two patients lose these functions in any particular pattern. So a patient may still be able to work certain things, like, for instance, the security system or the deadbolt system on the door, but may be unable to do simple things like brush their teeth uh, or pull their pants up. That's just the way the brain dies. It's not intentional behavior. That's, that's the result of the kind of alterations that you're seeing in these pictures. 
And finally, let's talk a little bit about agnosia. Agnosia is the inability to recognize previously learned sensory inputs. For instance, if you ever go into a room and there are some people in there that seem familiar but you can't remember what their name is, that's because your occipital lobes are telling you, well, we think we know who they are but we can't identify their name file. You remember how awkward that is, how unpleasant that is? Well, that's what it's like to have visual ag facial agnosias and to have Alzheimer's disease. They can also have tactile agnosias where they don't recognize the touch of things anymore. In the next slide, we see slices through the occipital lobe. On the left is a normal. On the far right is an advanced Alzheimer patient. This patient to the far right probably doesn't recognize anybody anymore. They may recognize a, a loving touch or the sound of a voice of a loved one, but they may not really recognize that facial uh, representation anymore. Uh, oftentimes patients begin to lose uh, remembrance for the face of their caregiver and that is particularly difficult for the caregiver. But unfortunately that's just the way the brain is affected by the disease. So what then are some common types of dementia that you may uh, need to deal with? Well the more common types of dementia include Alzheimer's disease which is uh, is probably accounting for about 60% of all dementia in people over the age of 65. You've been told before that by, in some instances that vascular dementia is very common. In, in fact, pure vascular dementia is not as common as we think. Probably the second most common type of dementia in the elderly is diffuse Lewy body disease, uh, a disease that we may talk about at some future day. Post-traumatic dementia, individuals, younger individuals who have head injury, uh, frontotemporal dementia, and don't forget alcohol-induced dementia. These are the common dementias you'll see. All of the principles that we've just described to you today in this segment are applicable uh, in the management of any of these uh, brain disorders. Now, what I haven't talked about is many of the behavioral problems that you're going to see as a consequence of this cognitive loss, and I've not talked about the psychiatric manifestations either, simply because we don't have time today. Needless to say, about 75% of patients with dementia are going to develop some sort of psychiatric and behavioral problem that's going to need to be managed. We know that about a third of patients are going to become delusional, and probably about 25% of patients are going to develop either visual or auditory hallucinations that need to be appropriately managed. The most important part of this, though, is proper assessment. For instance, you don't want to treat somebody for hallucinations uh, if they're actually delirious or they have psychotic depression. You want to identify the delirium or the depression and treat that rather than putting them on an antipsychotic because you think that they have dementia with hallucinations or delusions. Which then leads to the whole concept of, well, who needs to be knowledgeable? Who needs to know these facts in your workforce? And the answer is everybody. In our program in my state and in Alabama, we have what's called an integrated multi-level educational program. The doctors need to understand, as well as the nurse practitioners and the physician's assistants, the basic causes, manifestations, and man management strategies for these diseases. The licensed professionals also have to be trained. I'm not just talking about the registered nurses and the social workers. I'm also talking about the physical therapists and the speech-language pathologists who are caring for your patients in your facility. They need to know all of the types of deficits and the management strategies for these individuals. Of course, the non-licensed professionals need to be trained, such as the CNAs. Your behavior management uh, program is only as good as the CNA who's trying to execute it at 2 o'clock in the morning with minimal supervision. In addition to that, you need to have a family education program 
so that when the CNAs are talking to the family or the nurses are talking to the family about Alzheimer's disease, they understand the natural history and progression of this disease, that it is a relentless progressive disease which will eventually disable and kill a patient. And finally, anybody who comes into your facility who uh, is going to manage one of your patients, for instance, if you're using a sitter program, they also need to have some basic information so that they can contribute to the overall care of this individual. So finally, what have we learned today? First of all, confusion is common in the long-term care setting. There's lots of knowledge that long-term care professionals need to master in order to take appropriate care of these individuals. In order to be safe in the management of these folks, you need to understand delirium, depression, and dementia. In dementia, you need to understand the four A's, amnesia, aphasia, apraxia, agnosia. You need to understand the behavioral problems produced by these intellectual losses and the best ways to manage them. Obviously, this is a mass of information that's beyond the scope of just this talk. If you want more information uh, that's uh, free and readily available, please go to our website, www.alzbrain.org. Thank you. And now Dr. Powers joins us in the studio. Good afternoon, Dr. Powers. Good afternoon. And thanks so much for being here today. Your presentation was very enlightening, and I think the slides of the brain um, and how it changes as dementia progresses are really dramatic. Uh, the pictures definitely help us to understand how and why behavior symptoms occur in many residents with dementia. Yeah, it, whenever I go out and give a talk to CNAs, and I, I talk to a lot of them, uh, they always say the same thing. He looks so healthy. Why is he acting like this? Why won't he do that? And I find that when, uh, and because the disease only afflicts the brain and they don't have other physical signs, oftentimes there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I find that the pictures really help the staff to understand that their brain is dying and they need to be treated with the consideration of somebody with a lethal disease. Mm. I guess this could be expected with such a complex topic. Uh, it appears that your presentation has raised some questions and I think we're going to start with Sharon over here. Sharon, your question. Thanks, Doris. Dr. Powers, you mentioned trophic factors as something that might be used in future treatment of dementia. What are trophic factors and what is their potential for the future? Well, there are many different ways that the brain sends messages from uh, one part to another or from one cell to another. And one of the most important that we're learning are these trophic factors. And what trophic factors are is molecules that promote the growth of uh, dendrites and axons. Those are the, the like the tree-like limbs that uh, sprout out from the neuron uh, and also promote uh, the connections between uh, called synapses. And we're, we're figuring out that, that synapses sort of predict how vulnerable you are to, to developing dementia. So anything you can do to promote the regeneration in the complexity of those synapses is helpful. There are medications that are, are being prepared to be released right now. One is nerve growth factor that we think may be helpful uh, in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I've got a question as well, <clears throat> Dr. Powers. You know, I was wondering when you talked about short-term memory loss, I was wondering if I have it. I, I call them intellectual interludes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I lose my keys sometimes or um, I go into a room and I put something down. I can't remember why I went in there. Um, 
should I be worried that I'm getting what folks call old-timers disease? Yeah, I get hit with that question all of the time. There's three different kinds of memory problems that a person can have. As we get older, not that you're getting older, but as, <laughs> as we get older, some of us get older, right. uh, uh, we become more forgetful. That's called age-associated memory impairment. We lose the ability to process large amounts of new information. doesn't mean that we have uh, disease. It just means that we're getting a little bit older. There is this second entity that is now being studied extensively by scientists called mild cognitive impairment, where you have a significant memory problem, but that's all you have. You don't have language or motor skill problems. Uh, the scientists believe that that may be a, a harbinger of dementia in the future and then of course there's dementia for instance when you were 25 or 30 and you got sent to the store with a list of uh, 15 things and you didn't write it down uh, you'd come back with maybe 12 or 13 and you knew you'd forgotten something mm -hmm. when you get to be 50 uh, you know <laughs> you maybe come back with 10 or 11 and you're mad that you didn't write it down <laughs> right. if you go to the store and come back with one or two or forget why you went to the store mm -hmm. or forget where the store is that's uh, that's different, and that is an, an indicator for something like mild cognitive impairment. If that's the case, then you need to look into it a little further. Okay. To follow up on Doris's question, just how short is short-term memory? Is it just the remembering of a phone number you looked up for a few seconds, or is it remembering something for a few hours or a few days? Well, that's a good question, and it's, it's right sort of at the edge of how much we know about how the brain processes information. The pictures that were shown on the video of the hippocampus, that mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. seahorse-shaped structure, that is where all new information must flow through in order to get into long-term memory. We don't really understand long-term memory particularly well. We can hold on to short-term memories for maybe five or ten minutes, and then unless we keep repeating it over and over again, it gets lost. Now, the other important thing to remember is that there are other things that can damage the hippocampus. For instance, if somebody has a cardiac arrest and their blood pressure and oxygen is low, or if they've been put on the bypass pump for vascular surgery and they had troubles on the pump and their pressures were low, the hippocampus is very sensitive to low blood pressure and low oxygen, and it's damaged easily, and they can also develop this sort of amnestic syndrome, but yet their long-term memory is relatively intact. For a resident with gait uh, praxia, where they forget how to use their feet, as you said, does this person tend to stand there and just stand still? Are they at risk for falling? Well, it would be a lot simpler if they did just stand there and stand still, but the reality is that oftentimes uh, they will try to walk. You know, Alzheimer patients like to wander. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it, it, it's sort of like if, if, if you're on rollerblades and, and you can't, don't know how to use them. That's what it feels like. And so consequently, they, they feel unsteady. And you can see them when they stand up. They kind of sometimes rock back and forth. They don't know where to put their feet. Uh, but then they will get going, and they are at risk for falls. And so consequently, the staff has to be very careful with those patients who are beginning to forget how to uh, walk. Likewise, they forget how to sit down. And you'll see patients trying to figure out how to get their body into the correct position to sit on a chair or on the commode. And so consequently, they need help rising and they need help sitting. With that being the case, do you have any suggestions of how staff should re respond to a resident with gait apraxia? Well, they should respond with great caution. They should know that these patients are at significant risk for falls. And so consequently, uh, they should uh, assist them when they're standing or they're sitting. Uh, they should assist them when they're walking if it seems like they're unsteady. 
Uh, if they are having trouble with falls, uh, then it is worthwhile to get a PT consult uh, to see if perhaps there's some other unrecognized motor problem that's being overlooked. Uh, and finally, you have to you have to treat them like every other fall patient. You have to do things like put hipsters on them. If they are falling and hitting their head, you have to put a helmet. Do everything you can to try to mitigate this risk for these patients. On the other hand, you don't want to tie them up. Uh, so they are going to get up, and, and sometimes despite your best efforts, they will fall. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just the, the balance of weighing the patient's rights and freedom against the potential risks. Eventually, they forget how to f completely how to walk, and then they become bed-bound. Mm -hmm. What you said about delirium, uh, you said it should be ruled out. How would a surveyor tell that there might be a problem with unrecognized delirium? That's a very important uh, question. Uh, I think that when the surveyor uh, goes into a facility, they ought to ask basic questions like, you know, what happens if a patient comes back from the hospital and is severely confused? Oftentimes your patients will come back from the hospital uh, and, and they will have a change in their cognitive status. You know, how do you look for that? How do you monitor the patients to see if they've had an abrupt change in either their intellectual or their psychiatric status? If that's the case, then, then they should have sort of a set evaluation that they do for those individuals. So a high index of suspicious, suspicion is very important in making sure, and the, and the staff should be able to tell you that, yeah, delirium's a big problem, and we watch for it. You also mentioned that the physician must distinguish psychotic symptoms from delirium. Would you say a little bit more about this determination? Yeah, oftentimes a patient will have a new onset of, uh, of hearing voices, seeing things, uh, having false beliefs, the staff is poisoning me, for instance. Uh, when that happens, the staff should have an evaluation that they do on those individuals. If it is an abrupt onset, then it's more likely to be delirium or some other neuropsychiatric problem. On the other hand, if it's a slow kind of grumbling process that slowly gets worse, like you know, two months ago you noticed that sometimes they seem to be hearing sounds or voices and, and now it's all the time and, and now they're refusing their medications because they think you're trying to poison them. Uh, when the, now that sounds more like psychosis associated with dementia. So the, the big thing is sort of the time uh, course with regards to the onset of psychotic symptoms. Whether you have psychosis associated with Alzheimer's disease or whether you have psychosis associated with delirium, the hallucinations and delusions oftentimes look, look the same. Uh, Dr. Powers, it looks like we have a question from one of our viewers. Uh, they'd like to know if you can give a practical example of the assessment and management of a delirious patient. Yes, every facility should have a standard protocol that it runs through whenever they think that the patient has had this abrupt change. There are, many, there are several common reasons why all patients become delirious, but especially brain damaged. Not only patients with dementia, but your traumatic brain injury. Uh, for instance, unrecognized medical problems. In, uh, in uh, ladies with Alzheimer's disease, uh, urinary tract infections will oftentimes bring on confusion. Mm -hmm. So for instance, a uh, urinalysis should be considered a routine part of a delirium evaluation unrecognized other infections. You got to remember, for instance, that Alzheimer patients can't tell you mm -hmm. that their chest hurts or their belly is bothering them, so they need a good, careful medical evaluation. Uh, inappropriate medications. We know that there are certain drugs, especially those medications that have a high anticholinergic profile, uh, that have a very high risk of causing confusion. So for instance, if the patient was recently placed on amitriptyline, uh, which is a very anticholinergic uh, antidepressant, that may be the cause of the delirium. 
Sometimes it's simple things like a rectal impaction can cause a patient to stop eating, get dehydrated, and become confused, or even things like environmental stimulation. If you change the patient's room, if you put a roommate in, in with them that screams all night and now they're not sleeping at night, these are all the kinds of things that can cause, it, especially a demented person, to become confused. Okay, we have another question. Uh, this one is, when a person loses the ability to do a certain action, uh, like putting on their shirt, is it permanently lost or does this vary in that they can do it sometimes and then not at others? Well, initially what you have is you have good days and bad days where they can do some things, they can bathe themselves, they can dress themselves, and but then on other days things are not quite so good. And I always tell the families and the caregivers, rejoice for the good days, but don't expect them to remain good. Uh, eventually most of those functions are uh, lost permanently. The other question that I get asked all the time is, well, you know, sometimes he does this one thing and it's really great, and why can't he do all these other things? And the answer is that's just the way the brain malfunctions. I mean, sometimes I can go out in my backyard and shoot two or three three-pointers. It doesn't make me into Michael Jordan, and you shouldn't expect me to go out for the NBA. And the same thing is with your patients, you know, that you have to, you have to rejoice when they can do things, but not expect them to be able to do them consistently. Dr. Powers, I have one more question for you. What about the diffuse Lewy body type of dementia you mentioned? What is it and how is it diagnosed? Yeah, diffuse Lewy body disease is probably going to be uh, the second or third most common cause of dementia in people over the age of 65. Uh, it has a completely different pathology than Alzheimer's disease and probably has a completely different genetics as well. Uh, instead of being uh, a disorder of uh, amyloid, this abnormal protein, it's a disorder of a different protein called synuclein. The key features of diffuse Lewy body disease are that they have dementia, they have intellectual loss that may look just like Alzheimer's disease. The second thing is uh, that oftentimes the intellectual impairment fluctuates, where some days they seem to be relatively with it and intact, and other days they really are quite confused. And the third thing is that oftentimes they'll experience visual hallucinations. Uh, with Alzheimer's disease, there's a kind of a predictable natural history where typically they get the memory problems and the intellectual problems first and then two or three years later into the disease, they develop the psychiatric problems. With diffuse Lewy body disease, however, oftentimes they'll have only mild intellectual problems and boom, all of a sudden they have the psychotic symptoms. Uh, now, is that foolproof? Can you go to the bank with that one? No. I mean, sometimes it's just impossible to distinguish the two. The other thing that you'll see in diffuse Lewy body disease is Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they'll have, uh, you'll see dementia uh, in the setting of Parkinson's disease, or when you put them on the old antipsychotics, we call it the neuroleptic stress test, like uh, haloperidol, uh, they'll become very, very stiff. So when you have a patient who has fluctuating cognitive loss, visual hallucinations, and Parkinsonism, you ought to think about diffuse Lewy body disease. Does the person with this type of dementia present with different losses of functioning or different behaviors, or is the progression of the dementia different? Well, as I said before, what will happen is that sometimes they'll lead with the psychiatric problems. The other thing is that oftentimes they're mixed dementias, where people have both of them. They have both Alzheimer's disease and diffuse Lewy body disease. The reality is, though, that there, there's no absolute way to know exactly the cause of a person's dementia. And the only way to absolutely confirm it is with a post-mortem autopsy. Mm.
All right, thanks a lot, Dr. Powers. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.